0: For much of this year, the Orioles bullpen was a two-headed monster—two all-stars, Felix Bautista and Yenir Cano. But with Bautista out, it does leave some question marks for 2024. But we're going to review both of their incredible 2023 seasons coming up on this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast.
1: You are Locked On Orioles, your daily Baltimore Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
0: And today is Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. And welcome back into the Locked On Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team Every day. As always, I'm your host, Connor Newcomb. And today I am joined by Elijah Ginsburg. He is the host, or one of the co hosts at least, of the Warehouse podcast covering all things Orioles. He's going to help us today talk about Felix Bautista and Yen Cano Kano and their 2023 seasons in just a second. But first, today's episode of the Locked on Orioles podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more. Right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's 150 bucks if your team wins. Just visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to get started today. And so we've got Eli Ginsberg here. He's from the Warehouse Podcast. We're talking Felix and we're talking Cano. But first of all, Eli, welcome to the show for the first time. Um, this is not our first time meeting, um, but it's been a little while. But welcome into the Locked On Orioles Podcast.
1: It's been absolute years. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here. We, we at the Warehouse are uh, excited to kind of starting – that we're kind of becoming a little bit of a part of this community, you know, this Orioles online community and uh, have all the respect in the world for what you're doing over here, Connor. So, yeah, pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, we got to We got to give some love uh, to all the Orioles podcasts. Let's let's just put it out there. And I think nobody thinks this anyway, but there is no competition and no animosity between other Orioles. podcasts. Right. <laughs> we feel like feel like the Orioles are a team just in that sweet spot where there's not a thousand podcasts like the Yankees. But there's also not one podcast, like maybe a like, I don't know, lesser known NHL team or something like we're very much in the middle with the Orioles, where everybody seems to be friends with each other. Everybody likes that each other puts out podcasts. um, And some of us knew each other from the 2017 Baltimore Dodgers. But that is a different story. (laughs) Today, we will talk about two pitchers who unfortunately were not members of the 2017 Baltimore Dodgers, although that would have been uh, quite a staff back then. But we're going to start by talking about Felix Bautista. And I get it, right? You're going to, a lot of people are going to think this conversation, well, it can be all positive, 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 but we know how this conversation ends, which is Felix Bautista left with an elbow injury on August 25th. He tried to come back for the postseason. It didn't work. He's out for the playoffs and he gets Tommy John surgery during the ALDS. He's missing all of 2024. We know that putting that aside, Eli, when you look back on the dominant 2023 season of Felix Bautista, what do you think is the thing that will stick in your mind the
1: most? I think the thing that will stick in my mind is, um, I mean, just kind of unparalleled dominance relative to what we have seen from really any Orioles reliever in my lifetime, uh, besides the Zach Britton season, of course. Um, But it was also kind of a different kind of dominance from the Britton season. You know, Britton was running up 65% ground ball rates. Felix is just blowing the ball past people uh, and doing it with kind of a wider array array of weapons than Britain had. Um, So yeah, just unbelievable dominance uh, in every facet of the game.
0: Yeah. I think for me, what I'll remember is how he was kind of deployed to just beat the new rules of baseball (laughs) and specifically the zombie runner in the extra. Right. So four times, and it seems like Brandon Hyde did it 10 times, but I looked it up. It was only four times that he did specifically this role where Felix Bautista came into the game in the bottom of the ninth inning on the road with the game tied. Now, not every inning was a one-two-three inning, but every single time he put up the zero that he needed. The Orioles basically played small ball, scratched across one run in the top of the 10th because Hyde knew he was going back to Felix. He said, we only need one run. And Bautista went out there, and it felt like every time he did that, Bautista was better in the bottom of the 10th inning. He would come back out there knowing that runner's on second, and most of the time he would strike out the side. In those four times he did that two-inning thing on the road, the Orioles won all four games, eight scoreless innings, two hits, 15 strikeouts, and two walks in those eight innings. I feel like that's what I was going to remember. Nobody else in baseball had a weapon like that who could basically, if you got to the ninth inning tied on the road and Felix was available, it felt like the Orioles were winning that game no matter what.
1: It's fascinating you say that because I like wrote down a quick highlight of the year for me from him and it was game one of the series against the Rays in July when he did exactly that. Uh, He came in in the bottom of the ninth inning managed to strike out Yandy Diaz and Wander Franco got through a clean ninth the Orioles scratch across one in the 10th and comes out and like you said well. It was three up, three down, but he did hit Luke Rayleigh first and then induce a ground ball. So it happens. Three up, three downs, close enough, you know. Um, But yeah, it's just hilarious you say that because I was thinking the exact same thing. Just the ability to maintain kind of the high octane stuff as he moves into a second inning uh, is a super rare capability. And Hyde definitely took advantage of it this year.
0: Yeah, some relievers, when they sit, you know, even guys who come in and get like, you know, one out in the seventh, right, to finish the seventh, and then they're tasked with getting the guys in the eighth, they lose a little bit. You sit around, you get a little cold. Felix Bautista seemed to get stronger whenever he pitched a second inning. And those four appearances were the only times he like did that specifically. But there were nine times this year when Felix went more than one inning. He did not give up a run that entire time. In those nine appearances where he went more than one inning, 15 innings pitched. No runs, two hits, 25 strikeouts in that time. <laughs> it's like, if you sent him out there for a second inning, you were good too. You didn't lose anything right. with Felix Bautista. And, and obviously a lot of this is like, we get it, right? He throws hundred miles per hour. Like that, that's the number one thing you're going to see. He threw 70% fastballs. He basically averaged a hundred this year, which is outstanding. He touched 103 a couple of times this season, but I kind of want to talk more about his splitter only because there, I mean, you can argue back on this if you want, there might not be many other off-speed pitches that are better in all of baseball than Felix Bautista's splitter right now.
1: Yeah, I I think that's completely fair. Um, I I guess just kind of echoing one quick note on the fastball is the average MLB fastball drops about 15 inches. And Felix's drops about seven inches on the way to the plate. So, you know, not only is it as hard as you said, but it is just beelining and he's releasing it from seven feet off the ground. You know, it's just unparalleled in how effective that fastball is. But speaking to the splitter, um, he releases it at six point nine feet off the ground. You know, just a couple of inches. It's a little bit further out front from the fastball. And because of that, you know, you get the quote unquote tunneling effect. Uh, comes out looking exactly like that fastball does. And while that fastball is staying up, uh, the splitter is doing an incredible job of just using the seams to like air break basically and starts plummeting. It it actually does like induce a couple inches of rise, but any kind of backspinning ball will do that. It tumbles and falls out of the zone. And when you're gearing up for, you know, like we talked about 103 at the top of the zone, um, and trying to swing over that ball because your eyes are going to play tricks on you. Uh, the splitter is just devastating.
0: Yeah, it's an incredible combination, really, to have those right. two pitches in your arsenal. Because we see a lot of guys in the big leagues, good relievers, who have that fastball that plays well. Who you know it has that quote-unquote rise ball. You know that doesn't drop as much. But you see a lot of those guys with a wipeout slider too. And don't get me wrong, that's a great arsenal to have. But the fact that Felix has, you know, essentially a pitch that feels like it goes up and a pitch that goes straight down, and hitters really struggle. And among pitches that ended 25 plate appearances or more this year, so basically pitches that main relievers or starters threw a lot this season as their out pitch, Felix Bautista with his 60% whiff rate on the splitter was basically the fourth best swing and miss pitch in baseball. Only a Chapman sinker, which if Chapman throws it anywhere near the zone, guys don't really (laughs) hit that pitch. Clay Holmes' sweeper, which was kind of an interesting thing in here because you mm. think of him as a sinker baller, but I right. guess that pitch was played well. And then Tyler Glassnow's curveball, which the Orioles have seen plenty of times. And while they did square up Glassnow a good amount this year, it's generally more when they get on that fastball. Right. Felix is fourth. And those other three guys that I mentioned are also all stars, right along with him. So he is up in that incredible company. And you just look at, the stuff now. And, you know, we'll get to at the end, like, you know, the worry about him having Tommy John and missing all of next year and 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 how this plays up. But you just, you know, and, and I've had this conversation a lot on the podcast, but you just think back and like, what clicked and how did it take this guy this long to get into the big leagues? Because it's not like he spent 10 years in the minors and he became a good middle reliever, right? You've seen that before. He spent 10 years in the minors and became I don't, I don't think it's unfair to say he was the best relief pitcher in Major League Baseball this year. It's, it's unbelievable what he did, what the Euros development staff did with him, and now this arsenal is is untouchable at times.
1: Yeah, I, to echo the untouchable, at, since 2000, all pitchers with a minimum of 50 innings pitched, his 46.4% K percentage is seventh since the year 2000. And that is after the likes of Josh Hader Chapman, Edwin Diaz last year. And and so, yeah, what the Orioles were able to accomplish from taking like a 26 year old kid who was just released from the Marlins DSL team. um, It is nothing short of remarkable. I I really don't fully, I haven't fully grasped how that happened either. (laughs) Um, I, I do think, you know, when he came up, he was still listed at like, six, four and 190 pounds or something like that. So definitely might've just put some muscle on and uh, found some velo in there, but yeah, he, he is um, yeah. It just, you can't talk about how dominant he truly was uh, especially like, and how critical he was to this Orioles team, because with the starting rotation faltering a bit at the end of the year, or at the beginning of the year, as it was finding its feet, as Grayson was struggling uh, the ability to shorten games with him, with Cano, uh, really just set us up for success as the year went along.
0: Yeah, and and I don't think having Felix would have really changed a lot of what happened in the ALDS, but it certainly changed how Brandon Hyde managed games. I mean, I talked about it with the two inning thing; like he was an incredible weapon. I guess I'll read out his season stats. Didn't really get to that yet. Sure. Sixty one innings, a one four eight ERA, sixteen point two Ks per nine. It was a forty six point four percent K rate that you talked about. Eleven percent walk rate. He was worth almost three war, according to fan graphs, as a relief pitcher and opponents hit 144 against him. And, you know, he throws this other pitch, this slider, which he doesn't throw much. He only threw 47 of them, right? Oh, wait, he didn't give up a hit on the slider all year. So it's like he's got this third pitch that's just like a get me over slider. And now, like, maybe it's a weapon when he comes back from Tommy John. So we we just kind of look at this guy and and it's it's both sad that we won't see him next year. And it's also unbelievable what we get to see him do.
1: Yeah, I, I remember uh, I remember tweeting something out, you know, laughing about how effective the slider is just because, it, you know, metrically, it's his worst pitch without question. Um, it's ju- it's just a pretty average slider for all intents and purposes. But I remember this one at bat against Julio Rodriguez, where he absolutely dismantled him. Um, and it's really, you know, like we've talked about the other two pitch combo is so devastating that hitters are so, in, you know, intently focused on what which one of those two is coming that as soon as something starts you know sweeping to the glove side you're just hopeless you flail at it and it it it, you know it results in comedy for us i think rodriguez had like spun around and ended up in the left-handed batter's box and um, and it's on his worst pitch yeah but like you said didn't give up a hit on it Um, the swinging strike rate was also phenomenal the results are phenomenal on that pitch as well um, it's just kind of an afterthought because of how good the first two are.
0: Yeah. And, and an incredible season rewarded with an all-star appearance. It's unfortunate what happened at the end, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll kind of get to it at the end of this podcast about how that went, but I think one of the big reasons why the Orioles bullpen was so good this year, number one was Felix Bautista, but the fact that for a good chunk of this season, they had a guy in the eighth inning that was performing just as well. And that was Yannir Cano. And we will get to his unbelievable breakout season coming up next, but 1st this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. Now, of course, we continue to talk baseball here on this podcast, and a great World Series continues between the Diamondbacks and the Rangers. But you can also score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets without or just with winning any $5 money line bet. That's $150 bucks, just if your team wins. So, if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over/unders, and more. So, visit FanDuel.com/lockedon and kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. So, we are here with Elijah Ginsburg. He is the co-host of the Warehouse Podcast that covers all things Orioles, as we do here on the Locked On Orioles Pod. And Eli, we just talked about Felix Bautista, the mountain. Now we get to The Rock in Yenier Kano, who, you know, for Felix, this was obviously an amazing season, right? But he did also have a great 2022. So it's not like we came into 2023, like expecting Felix to be, you know, an up-down reliever or something. I think best case scenario for Yenier Cano for fans was like, oh, he could be like the sixth guy in the bullpen maybe if he figures out how to throw a strike. And he didn't make the opening day roster and then put on through April and May, just one of the greatest runs I've ever seen from a relief pitcher. So when you look back on the Cano 2023 season, what do you think that number one memory and takeaway will be?
1: I I think the biggest takeaway is kind of, yeah, I mean, it's just the shock and awe of it for me because if you had asked last year at the deadline, you got this guy, Yeni Cano, would you – Right now, in this moment, would you reverse what just happened and take Jorge Lopez back and shoot him back, and you know, forget Cade Povich? Forget it. I think ninety-eight percent of Orioles fans would have said yes. It, you know, the fact of the matter is, nobody wanted this guy. Um, and like you said, he was an afterthought. He came up last year, uh, gave up double-digit runs, if I remember correctly, and like five innings pitched, could not throw a strike. You were like, yeah, the fastball is fast and it sinks a little bit. That's lovely. But nobody was excited about this guy in any way, shape, or form. Um, so credit to the development staff that, you know, they were able to find this sinker or change up combo that uh, is so wildly devastating.
0: Yeah, the, the stat line was kind of almost as good as, as Felix Bautista's. Cano, who appeared in 72 games this season, almost half of the Orioles games, featured Denier Cano, a guy who was not on the roster for the first two weeks of the season. He threw 72 and two-thirds innings, two-one-one ERA. The big stat is a 58% ground ball rate. You mentioned that Zach Britton season. This is somewhat the closest the Orioles have seen to that since that Zach Britton season. 23% strikeout rate, still really solid, especially for a ground ball pitcher. And the big one for Cano was a 5% walk rate for a guy who felt like he couldn't throw a strike coming into this season. And you mentioned last year, I mean, Between the Twins and the O's of the big leagues last year, he had an 11.5 ERA in 18 innings. And he had a 2-1-1 this year. And for me, what I'll remember is, it's the shock and all, but just, I mean, if he would have had a 2 ERA in the first month, we would have been like, this is amazing. What have the Orioles done? I will remember those first 17 scoreless appearances and the first 20 appearances without a walk. He didn't walk anyone till his 21st appearance in the big leagues this year. Remember, didn't make the opening day roster. He gets called up April 14th because the O's need some arms. Not only does he get called up, Brandon Hyde puts him in a high-leverage spot in a one-run game in the seventh in his first game, and all he does is roll a double play to get out of a jam. And you're like, oh, this might go a little bit better this year. First 17 appearances, 21 and two-thirds innings, four hits, none of them extra base hits, no runs, 25 strikeouts, no walks, and one hit batter. He was legitimately... Better than Felix Bautista in those first 17 appearances that the Orioles had him up here. It was insane to see what he did. And we know he wasn't that good the rest of the year, mostly because it's literally impossible to be that good for an entire season. (laughs) But Eli, early in the year, I mean, I almost like I would get on here and I would talk about what he's doing and how he's doing it with the sinker change up combination and how the pitches look the same until they're not and why it was working and, and all that kind of made sense. But in my mind, I was just like, and you talked about this already. I I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Like, how does a guy make that big a change in an off season and become that good that quickly? I, I still almost can't really make sense (laughs) at, you know, 28, 29 years old, how he finally did this.
1: Yeah. Believe me, I yeah, I am equally confused, uh, and I'm like at a loss for words here because it truly is unlike anything that I think I have seen in my lifetime. Um, the, and, and I guess just the degree to which it was completely unheralded before, you know, they thought that he was a one pitch guy. The sinker could be relatively effective if he could throw strikes. Um, so yeah, turning into you know probably the most half of the most fearsome one-two at the back of any bullpen across the first half of this season. Um, and, and then, you know, you could argue that toward the end of the year, his struggles are attributed to the fact that he got towards the top 10 and appearances in a season, despite having spent the first month down, um, you know, we used him extremely heavily, particularly after Felix went out. So I, I think that there's no reason to be anything but optimistic for next year. Um, yeah. I, it, he's a phenomenal story and he seems like a great dude. Uh, he, you know, he seems to enjoy being on this team. Uh, you gotta love him.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of it was fatigue when he struggled right. throughout the year. I mean, he'd never done anything close to the usage he had. And it was just unbelievable to see him make an all-star team this year. I mean, that was incredibly cool for him. And, you know, he had that kind of iffy July, right. It was like the first time we'd ever seen him struggle a little bit. He had a four or five ERA and Euros broadcasters, it was either Ben McDonald or or Jim Palmer. It might have been Ben who kind of pointed it out on the air that he was like, hey, you know, I think Cano's arm angle is dropping a little bit. He's not getting as much sync on those pitches. And it was kind of right. And Cano fixed it. And he didn't allow a run in August. And that really impressed me as well, because he identified something that was going wrong. I'm sure Ben, you know, went down to the clubhouse and said, hey, you know, you're doing this. Um, And he said, all right, number one pick. Let me let me uh, take a look at what I'm doing. (laughs) you know, no runs in August. And yes, you know, he only threw nine innings in September. He gave up six or seven runs. Like it wasn't great. And he was tired. I, I mean, I am pretty certain that the arm angle probably dropped a little bit again because he was starting to get really fatigued on the mound. But, you know, we, we talked about Felix's stuff. I mean, second to that, maybe in this bullpen is this sinker change up combination for Cano with the slider thrown in there, you know, when that arm angle did drop a little bit that, you know, you look at what he did, how he got ground balls, how he got some swings and misses. It was a really, I think, interesting arsenal because he was a ground ball pitcher. Yes, but he, he still got his strikeouts this year. And it it was kind of that, that combination of his stuff.
1: Yeah. uh, Speaking to that combo. Uh, so the sinker and changeup, just looking off baseball savant, have exactly the same amount of movement. They both moved 19.2 inches. Um, and they move on largely the same axis. You know, it's three o'clock for the changeup, three thirty for the sinker. So very, very close to each other. Um, sinker is a tiny bit more downward, but you know, you have this six and a half mile an hour difference between the two in the speed. So these two pitches look completely identical. Um, and I think that in dropping that arm angle a little bit, in losing some of the motion or some of the movement that he was inducing on the sinker. Uh, they probably started to spread a little bit, started to separate, and that made him even more hittable. Um, Yeah, so it's really as loud as the stuff is, as high-octane, like we said with Felix, as it is, you know, coming in at 96, 97 miles an hour, this is a guy who largely just feasts on deception. You know, he throws two pitches that look exactly the same uh, until it's way too late. And, and I mean, the fact that he's throwing a changeup, moving 19 inches at 90-plus miles an hour is – Incredible in itself, too.
0: This is going to sound like a stupid statement, but it's just Kyle Hendricks with velocity. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what exactly what it is. Yeah, that's senior, you know, does Kyle Hendricks throw maybe, you know, 87 instead of 97 on his fastball? Right. Yes, but it's like, is that the fastball or is that the changeup? And by the time right. you figure it out, it's too late. That's what right. happens against Hendricks when he's good. That's what happens against Cano when he's good. And what I was really interested in was he threw that slider and he didn't throw it a whole lot, but he threw it more as the season went on because you could almost see like as his arm angle dropped and he was getting fatigued, he almost felt like I'm getting a little more run on this slider. Like maybe let me throw this while I struggle a bit. And he only allowed one extra base hit on that pitch. Now he wasn't throwing it to lefties. He was only throwing it to right-handers, but that had a good whiff rate. Like it seemed like a pitch that early in the year was kind of a get me over. Maybe I'll throw one per outing if I need to, to, hey, maybe this is a weapon he can work on a little bit in the off that Maybe he can be a, a more of a three pitch guy going into 2024.
1: Yeah, fully agreed. I I, I think with that, um, you know, we were talking about the loss of effectiveness on the sinker with the slider. He also bumped up at the usage of his four seam fastball too, um, which also is you know 96 and a half miles an hour. It, it's definitely not a slouch in its own right. Had positive run value everything throughout the course of the year. Um, yeah, I, I I think that there is some room to expand his arsenal. Uh, I I think that. Probably the focus for the Orioles heading into next year is ensuring that the mechanics are down to the point where he does have the two pitch combo consistently. And then, you know, doing a better job of managing his usage throughout the year, probably so that it can stay at that point. Um, and then figuring out where the sinker can come from, or I'm sorry, where the slider can come from from there. Um, it did seem like, you know, maybe the fact that his arm angle was dropping a little bit. Enabled him to get around the slider a little bit more, and that's what was causing it to be effective. Uh, but I think that you largely don't want to sacrifice the sinker change up combo for that. So, yeah, um, it, it's a little bit tough. Uh, I, I think that the Orioles will definitely play with it and see what they can come up with. But, you know, he is his most effective self uh, when he's working to that arm side.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, they definitely want to limit that usage that you talked about. Right. And it's also going to be tough to do that without Felix Bautista next. Right. It's gonna be a real like give and take. So I, I know I have an, an opinion on this. I, I wanted to get yours first. Cano was kind of the de facto closer once Felix went out this season. He didn't get every chance, right? We saw Danny Coulomb, we saw CNL Perez, we saw Tyler Wells in that role a little bit at the end of the year. You could argue that Cano is the front runner maybe to get that job going into next year, depending on what the Orioles do in the offseason. Brandon Hyde seems to to like to have a a fairly set closer. Now maybe that's easy because he's had All-Star Jorge Lopez and All-Star right. <laughs> Felix Bautista, but even back in the day like he loved going to Cesar Valdez and Cole Salser in in all of those spots, you know? So it, it sounds like he's probably going to have a guy in that role. Would you give it to Cano? Let's say the Orioles don't like sign like a veteran like capital C closer. Would you give it to Cano next year? or Would you keep him in the role we saw him in earlier in the season?
1: I would give credit to my co-host, Tyler, at this point um, for being the first one to really peep that we were moving this direction as the playoffs came on. But I I think that D.L. Hall might end up in a high-leverage spot. Um, I, he has, you know, he's so conflicting because he does still have... The longevity and the stuff to become a starting pitcher. Um, but that said, I, I think that the need will be there, and I think that his stuff is so unbelievably good. Um, I remember after his first start against the Rays when he came up last year, Eno Saras threw a tweet out and said, Of course it's a small sample, but the leader in stuff plus amongst starting pitchers is DL Hall. <laughs> um, so I I I think that I tend to give it to him if we were to go with a single person throughout the course of the year. But that said, I, I think that our bullpen will be most effective if we do go closer by committee. Um, yeah,
0: I, I I would agree with that unless there's you know they would make some move to to really go get somebody and I and I don't really see that happening with John Angelos and Michael Elias. But I, I'm I'm on the same page with you and I don't know if it's going to be Hall, but I I love DL Hall, but I do think it makes sense in this way. One thing Brandon Hyde loved is to have a strikeout machine in that closer role because what we talked about with Felix Bautista, he could do on the road. That two innings where maybe in the bottom of the ninth you didn't need those strikeouts, but when you sent him back out there in the 10th after you got that run, you need those strikeouts in that zombie runner situation. And he loved having Felix there, and no one is going to be Felix, but D.L. Hall could have strikeout rates that won't match Felix Bautista, but he's got the stuff to get up there. As good as Cano is, he's maybe just above league average, I think, in terms of reliever strikeout rate. Like he's not a guy who's a swing and miss guy. And we actually saw Cano get hurt a lot by the zombie runner this year because he would get like two weird Baltimore chop ground balls and it would be a run because his sinker is so good, guys would beat it into the ground. But when you start with a runner on second, it can hurt you in those scenarios. So I also do like Cano sticking in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning role, getting some big double plays, getting out of some jams, getting a lot of righties out. And then maybe going to a hall. Maybe you start with Tyler Wells, then you move to DL Hall in that role. Maybe you move him around. Maybe CNL Perez gets some of those chances. And Cano will certainly get some ninth inning chances. But I do agree that I probably wouldn't have him as the main guy. And Eli, I was, I was going to end this pod with. Felix Bautista talk about Tommy John, but I, I don't want to anymore. Honestly, that, that I don't want to end with the sad part of the conversation, so we're just going right. to knock it out of there. We're going to say Felix was awesome, and what we're going to say is he's going to be awesome in 2025 uh, when he comes back, and hopefully Cano is just as good in 24 because we know guys are going to need to step up without Felix Bautista. Like They needed them to down the stretch. They did somewhat in September. Some ways they didn't. In some ways they did. They're going to need it again next year, but it should be kind of an interesting back into the bullpen to check out. Eli, thank you so much for joining us here on the pod today. Uh, let everybody know where they can find your
1: podcast. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you can find us anywhere you get podcasts. We are called the warehouse podcast. Um, it's myself, Eli, our friend, Tyler, and my brother, Jesse. Um, and yeah, we're on Twitter at the warehouse pod and feel free to follow. And we would love to chat with you.
0: Yeah, go check out some more Orioles talk after you listen to this one. That has been Eli Ginsberg from the Warehouse Pod. We will be back tomorrow continuing to uh, review some Orioles seasons and also take a look at uh, all the moves the Orioles made in 2023. Which ones worked, which ones didn't, and what do they tell us about what Mike Elias and co. could do this offseason that's coming up on tomorrow's episode. But until then, I'm Connor Newcomb, and this has been the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team. Every day.